1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On today's show, we're going to talk about what is arguably the energy of the future, and that energy source is coal. Now, coal is the longest-standing energy source of the modern world. It came to prominence in the 19th century, and some environmental groups like to say that it should have stayed that way. when I debated the Sierra Club, their representative, Bruce Nellis, described coal as the energy of the 19th century. Uh, I pointed out that coal was the fastest-growing source of energy in the world. He said that was debatable and never debated it uh, because it's true. Anyway, but there's also the question of should it be the fastest-growing source of energy in the world? Or, or perhaps, uh, it's better put, should it be allowed to continue to grow? And many people say no. But on today's show, we're going to have uh, a man with very interesting viewpoints on coal that I've been reading a lot of lately, and he's Dr. Frank uh, Clemente. Now, Dr. Clemente is a longtime member of the faculty at Penn State. Uh, he was the, he's the former director of one of their, uh, in, of their environmental policy program. And the way he came to my attention was he, he uh, has a newsletter which you can subscribe to at energy-facts.org. And he says some things about coal that really only I've heard myself say. And, no, and he says a lot of things I haven't said, so I learn, I learn a lot from him. But he's particularly focused on the relationship between coal and healthy human lives. So he doesn't concede the environmental high ground, the environmentalist, and he makes many, many points, is a lot of interesting data. So I recommend subscribing to that newsletter, and I recommend hearing our upcoming interview. So we'll, we'll be with you on the other side with Dr.
0: Frank Clemente. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining
1: us now on Power Hour is Dr. Frank Clemente. Uh, Frank, welcome to Power
2: Hour. Thank you. Appreciate the invitation. Glad to be here.
1: So you you do a lot of really interesting uh, writing on energy and particularly particularly on coal, which we're going to get into. Uh, but you uh, just doing some background research on you. You're a you were a very very popular professor at Penn State, and not just in energy. So can you talk a little bit about your academic background and what what then what got you into? Uh, being a full-time researcher and, and uh, communicator on coal and energy issues?
2: Yeah, well, a lot of people ask me that question, and sometimes I I, I myself find my career hard to understand, but basically, I started out uh, at my graduate school at the University of Tennessee, where I was in uh, demographic studies, and I received my doctorate in the social science department, soci- sociology department, actually, in dem- demographic studies, and I taught for a year at, at Oak Ridge Natural, National Lab, mostly demography, uh, population. Uh, went to Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, and on to Penn State. And then when, I, when I was at Penn State, I, I studied industrial development quite a bit. And um, when I was at uh, started at Penn State on the faculty in the 1970s, there was a lot of movement to build power plants around the country, and and um, I hooked up with some government agencies, National Science Foundation and so forth, and started working on environmental statements, environmental impact statements, particularly the socioeconomic component of it for the federal government. And in that context, I made a lot of contacts in the uh, energy industry. And uh, did a lot of work in studying power plant impacts on local communities and nuclear power plants in particular, so I'm pretty pro-nuclear. And as the nuclear power plants sort of stopped being built after the Three Mile Island, I moved towards studying some of the the impacts of the plants that had been built and bringing them into the rate base, so I spent most of the 80s working on what was called stranded cost. Uh, by the 1990s, I was working in the area of electric utility deregulation, then in 2000, um, I in the 2000s, I started thinking about what, where were we were going to go with electricity. We weren't building nuclear power plants. People were, like Al Gore, were banging on coal plants. We we're going to start building natural gas plants, and I started thinking, is there going to be enough natural gas? So I spent five or six years studying that, uh, writing some papers on the issues associated with natural gas, and um, through one of my. Presentations or something I got involved with. Some people working in coal, and started to work with the National Coal Council, um, with doing uh, some studies of coal in the United States and coal around the world. Um, decided I'm, I knew enough to probably write a newsletter that at least my family would read. So I, <laughs> I, uh, did, I put out a newsletter called EnergyFacts.org, and that's received actually quite a fair amount of attention. So. I've worked, with, I've worked a fair amount recently with the National Coal Council on some of the papers that they've done for the Department of Energy, Secretary of Energy, uh, on things like enhanced oil recovery and advanced power plants, uh, CO2 capture and so forth. So, uh, you know, you learn as you go along. I didn't start out planning and working in the energy industry at all. I was a, a sociology professor pretty much. And uh, when I got, at some point in my career, after I'd been department head and the research, a research unit head for a while, I decided I'd go back into teaching. This was relatively late in my career. I was, uh, it was about 1998, I decided to go back into teaching and I resigned as department head because I had a really big department at Penn State. So I started teaching this course called Social Problems. I said I did teach Social Problems, and nobody wanted to teach Social Problems. So I started teaching Social Problems, and you know, I don't know, It just gained a big following, and by within three years, I was teaching pretty much close to 3,000 kids a year. <laughs> I, had, I, had two, uh, I had classes of 750 kids, four classes, twice a year. So that... Uh, That was a huge amount of people. I still have a lot of people out there in the real world that that recognize me in airports and restaurants all over the world. So I've uh, the course itself sort of took off, um, and by two thousand ten, it was two thousand eleven when I decided to quit teaching. I it was really a major popular course at Penn State. We had a pretty big auditorium.
0: So that was uh, that's how that's
2: where how my career developed. I was—I didn't see myself as a teacher. It was kind of a newfound talent for me, to be honest with
1: you. Uh, yeah. Well, I want to come back uh, to that at the end once once we discuss a lot about uh, these issues and maybe some insights on on how teaching might integrate with with these facts. But you mentioned industrial development and studying that. I think it's a good place to start in terms of looking at coal um, in its role as. Developing undeveloped countries throughout the world, and uh, recently you had one of your Colfax newsletters was about India. So can you give us a picture of how India has evolved uh, over the last thirty years and what what uh, what's been the relationship with coal?
2: Well, coal's probably the is lead, the leading fuel in India, and as you know, they're, they're a poverty ridden nation, and the you can't, I, mean, I can't really think about India as much with, without looking at what's happened prior to, in other nations and what's happened with coal in other, in other parts of the world. You know, coal is the foundation of the Industrial Revolution in Europe. It was the basis of the United States the enter, get, gaining the world stage economically. It's now a contemporary miracle in China, pulling hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And now we move to the next chapter, which basically is India. And India has about one uh, well, over 300 million, maybe 400 million people, nobody really knows who have no electricity whatsoever. India has uh, maybe eight, 900 people have a million people, million people these are this is twice in, probably three times the population in the United States. have no refrigeration. They have hundreds of millions of people that cook with wood or dung. So India is a very, very, as everyone knows, is a very impoverished nation. Coal is probably their leading resource. And they see what's happened to China. And they say, why can't we do something like that? Uh, they're, They're going to be by 2020 probably the largest nation in the world. They will have 1.5 or more billion people. They'll pass China. And they have a, uh, an issue to worry about, and that is their age distribution. They have almost 600 million people. I mean, that's, these numbers are stunning. You can't even comprehend them, you know, because that's twice the population of the United States. They have 600 million people under 24 years old. So when you start thinking of those numbers that are in India and what their expectations are, I mean this is this is really rising expectations right before our eyes. They have six hundred young six hundred million young people, less college age kids or less, a baby from college age kids to babies. Now they're gonna dictate a large part of the the future in Asia and even have an impact, a significant impact around the world. And they're turning to coal. And they're uh, using coal for electric power plants, of course. They're using coal. They're going to be importing a significant amount of coal to let them urbanize their nation because they're basically they're going to far exceed China in terms of urban uh, growth, in terms of number of people living in cities, incremental growth for cities. Over the next twenty-five to thirty years. So, yes, if China is the existing, if if, if, think, if you know if the Europe Europe was the first chapter, and the United States was the second chapter, and here we're in the middle of the third chapter with China, well, the fourth chapter is yet to be open, and that's India. And they they're using coal and going to use coal and planning to use coal to industrialize, modernize. And urbanize their nation and that's where the, uh, the, the basis of the work I've done in India is, is the, the, the sort of the inevitability of coal that's the only alternative they have I mean they don't have any, any natural gas they certainly couldn't power India with wind. Oil comes from someplace else, the Middle East And they want electricity, too, just like anybody else. I mean, you know, they want to raise their life expectancy. They want clean water. They want to uh, have the same kinds of resources that uh, people in the other parts of the world have. And, uh, you know, that's why when they look at things like the the Copenhagen Accord, and, uh, you know, they they say, well, wait a minute, poverty comes first. We have to eliminate poverty before we can start talking about all these reductions in in energy usage or energy demand, because we have 300 million people that don't have any electricity whatsoever. And when you don't have any electricity, that doesn't mean you can't play Sudoku online. That means you have no electricity.
1: Can you you, uh, elaborate just on what that means concretely? Because in the U.S., Uh, I mean, almost all of us have grown up with electricity, grown up with ample power, and it's not really real, I think, to us, absent really studying the issue, what it's like to not have a refrigerator, to not have light at night.
2: Well, these people, they live in a dark and dim world. It's sort of like There was an old statement in the slave fields, which said, in the the South, which said, they work from can't see to can't see. And that's really what's happening in many parts of India. Now, I I know this because of my personal history, which is, I'll just tell you for a moment, because it's kind of interesting. My wife and I have eight children. And uh, we, we had four children biologically, then we adopted four children. And we adopted them from places that are from overseas where places they didn't have electricity. And so one of our boys came to us when he was six years old. And um, he could tell stories of, uh, he was from North Korea, he was from a refugee from North Korea. And he could tell stories of uh, having to go to the bathroom in a, hole, in a hole in the ground, having no running water, having no electricity. Electricity, no refrigeration, having to cook on a little charcoal stove in a little shanty. And he told us these stories. And when we when we picked him up at Washington National Airport, when he was a ba- when he was a, he was six years old, and he weighed 35 pound. And so I, I carried him actually across the parking lot at Washington National like he was a baby, because that's what he was basically. And he was six years old. Well, today, after 20-some years of living quality of life with the electricity, the power, and so forth that we have in the United States, he's a United States Marine with uh, two combat medals, bravery under fire. So that's what electricity can do for you, and that's what, why people want electricity. They don't want to see their babies die. They don't want to see one out of uh, eight or nine babies die in the first year of life. They want to they want to improve and, and increase decrease their mortality rate. They want a life expectancy that goes beyond fifty two years old, and that's what we have. And that's what you know they would they deserve as much as anybody else. I mean, they you know maybe fifty percent of the people. In India, do not have a clean water source. So you have, you know, it, 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 it's it's not just a matter of inconvenience like it is to us. I mean, I I saw something the other day where somebody, some movie star in Idaho, in one of her her ranch, when electricity went out, and she says, "Oh boy, that wasn't bad. Everybody should live like this." It was not. It was like romantic, you know. It's not romantic when you know. One out of every nine babies dies before they're one-year-old. That's no romance.
1: So I don't think everyone would know, though, what's the, what's the connection? They might just say, well, don't we have medical advancements? Why do we need so much energy? And same thing with water. Like, why don't we need to just get, just stop contaminating our water? Why do we need electricity for clean water?
2: Well, the electricity is fundamental to clean water and a clean environment. I mean, if you did some studies or of, of some, some views of what, was, what the Tennessee River was like before the TVA, it was a polluted stream of garbage and filth, feces, and everything else floating down, down the river. So the, the, the clean water part of it is you, you move water by electricity. That's how you move and purify water. And, and you move the, uh, uh, the, you, you, the, that's how you get to a point where you have a clean environment is by uh, the ability to purify your environment, like, uh, such as water, where you have a lot of, you move, that's the only way you can move a lot of water. Now, in terms of things like electricity, well, electricity means you have no refrigeration. If you without electricity, you don't have refrigeration. Well, we don't have refrigeration and guess what you can you can't do anything with most many medicines require refrigeration it affects the uh, ability of people to read obviously at night you can't read you know and with during the day you're working so you can't read so there's an educational component to it in other words using people become uh, able to read and learn and go to school i mean there's a wonderful graph i have it sitting on my desk somewhere it shows the graph between in the United States between the rise of electricity and the number of women in school. It's amazing. It's a perfect correlation for all intents and purposes. In the 1900s, we had starting in 1900, we had virtually no electricity, and all women who were no, very few women who were in school and very few were going to college. Well, by the, by the 1950s. That number of women going to school had g- blossomed, and the number, uh, the amount of electricity produced blossomed as well. So, e- electricity is, is a fundamental part. Without, without uh, electricity, you cannot have a modern society. And you cannot have modern health care, you cannot have modern sanitation, you cannot have improved, improved water supplies. The pollution, the pollution that people talk about, is sometimes relating to sometimes an industrial economic development. That that's but the real pollution. Is if you if you look at people throwing their waste and uh, their body waste and so forth into the river or out in the street, and it flows to the river. That's how we had typhoid and malaria problems in the United States. So the, the electricity is the pathway to, to a, a better quality of life for everybody involved in it longer. It's one, one of those lines I use and we use a lot is, uh, more people living better, living longer. And that's, the, and that's what electricity does. I mean, it makes a difference in your life. It is the difference. I mean, look at the mortality rates. Um, I, mean just, I was just looking at India here in front of me right now. In, in, in 1970, the, um, the life expectancy in India was 49 years old. Uh, and the number amount of uh, electricity used was 25 terawatts. Well, by two two 2010, they were using 653 terawatt hours, so it had increased from 25 to 653, and the life expectancy had reached 66. So the life expectancy grew 17 years for a whole society of over a billion people. That's a pretty impressive number based upon... Uh, Electric increases in electric rates increases in the electric usage.
1: Yeah, no, no kidding. and I think I think people often don't realize these the impact on something like health, uh, environmental quality, and is, I think there's this premise that uh, you know nature will just give us those things. and really what industrialization does is mess them up versus nature doesn't give us those things and we need to make a lot of effort uh, you know using electricity. To, to improve it.
2: Yeah, we, we basically, I mean, first of all, you and I wouldn't be talking about electricity. I'd never know you, and the chances are I'd already be dead. And you might never have been born. I mean, you know, many of the people alive today wouldn't have even been born if it weren't for electricity because it, 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 it increased the, the uh, uh, life expectancy of, of, of particularly children. Into into adulthood, where they could have children and themselves. And I don't know what your personal history is, but my grandmother had. They were from Italy. They had no electricity in Italy, and she had uh, uh, she had eleven children, and only five survived to adulthood. So that's that's what happens. I mean, it's a. People think, all this is all romance. There's no romance associated with dying when you're nine months old.
1: Yeah. Um, One more point on this, especially because I I really, I mean, the story of your son was very powerful. And I've, I've said a lot of my own research has been on the history of oil and, and the transition between people going from that state of can't see to can't see to, to can see. What is it? I mean, what is it like in your son's experience or other experiences you've, you've studied for someone t- to go from not being able to see to being able to see? Because it just seems like this profound transformation, yet I myself have never, I've always been able to see at night.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things you mentioned, that every, you know, most of the people we talk to in the audiences I talk to in the United States, they have no conception of what it is to be without electricity, and neither do I. Because we've always had electricity, we grew up with electricity, and we, you know the, the, the I think people who come from an environment, I mean my son wandered around the house with these just tremendous gleam in his eyes. You know he, he couldn't imagine you could you know, get ice cubes out of the refrigerator, for example. it was beyond his comprehension that you could do that, and there was, there was so many the television. I mean, he would sit in front of the television for hours and wake up 5.30 in the morning to come down and watch television. And that's the way he learned the English language, pretty much. You know, just basically the the, the new things that he could do. Um, You know, I don't know. It's not an analogy that's perfect, but it's one that I always think of. When I was a little boy, I I didn't wear glasses. We lived in a situation where we didn't have, you know, we lived in a rural area and it was really didn't get to the doctor very much. So I went to my first grade, and it, it was pretty obvious that I couldn't see. And the, do- the teacher said, well, Frankie, can you tell me what that letter is? And I said, I would if it wasn't for those blue dots in front of my eyes. And she said, what blue dots? I said, those blue dots. Now, I thought the blue dots were always there. So when I went to the, they took me to the eye doctor, they put these glasses on me. It was a whole new world for me. I never even knew that world existed, and I was six years old. I could see that I, I mean, there were so many things I never had seen before. Because they didn't know I couldn't see. So it was, you know, I mean, it's just like opening a new world. It's a new vista that becomes available to people who have electricity. I mean, one of the things it would be worthwhile doing, and I'll find it, I can send it to you. I did some work on what the impact of TVA was. And what TVA meant that, that when electricity came to the farm. And people, thousands of people, these people from this backwoods Tennessee and down down into Alabama and so forth, wrote all these letters to President Roosevelt, thanking him for TVA, saying how it changed their lives. People threw, you know, they threw their electric lamps out the window. One lady said, I didn't know my house was so dirty. (laughs) So, you know, there was... there's there's all these letters of people. It's a great book. Somebody published the the book. And, you know, another book was called, uh, it was uh, some guy at one of the religious revivals said, uh, one of the guys stood up and later he said, brothers and sisters, he said that I'll tell you the best thing in the world is having a Lord in your heart. And the second best thing is electricity in your house. So, there's, you know, there's, uh, there's a, there's a, if you just, if people would just think about, well, first of all, where they came from. They don't have to go back too far. I mean, it, it was only was 1900 when we didn't have, when electricity was virtually, there was virtually no electricity and in the United States or, you know, anywhere else. And then you get to what, what happened in rural, in rural America when TVA came in and out in Nebraska, I mean, how people's lives changed the day that electricity came to the farm. Their lives changed forever. Imagine a woman out in rural Nebraska and what she had to do every day. And then here comes electricity. And she doesn't have to spend all day uh, hauling water, hauling wood. And the kids don't have to do that. I was reading an article not too long ago that said, Something like every day the women of South Africa walk essentially to the moon 250 times to get wood in that. Just for the fires in their home. So there's millions of women walking to get wood. And who knows what happens to them on their way. I mean, women are the ones that benefit from electricity without question. I mean, their lives change they get They go to school, they learn to read they get' they get they get freedom they're not they're not they don't have uh, bent shoulders from carrying buckets of water up the hill i mean their their lives change the day electricity comes to wherever it is and uh you know but I used to talk to my grandmother about it because she lived in an area that had no electricity. In the life that they lived, was it was you know you expected to die <laughs> relatively soon, and you definitely did not expect all your kids to come to you know even get to ten years old, let alone to adulthood.
1: So coal is, I mean, if we if we just study the the statistics, it is the you know, the driver of these um, you know, new industrial revolutions or uh, development revolutions. Around the world, um, a lot of people might wonder why that is, both in relation to the other fossil fuels, and then in relation to the, uh, you know, to wind and solar, which are often heralded as, well, these are great technologies, and there's an unlimited amount of them because there's an unlimited amount of sun and wind.
2: Well, I'm, I'm in favor of energy, so I, you know, I'm I think that we need to have a, a wide diversity of energy sources. So I do believe in that. I believe in all all the above. I but believe the, the
1: the this is in contrast, I guess, the idea that coal is, is antiquated and unnecessary, not the idea that everyone should use coal for everything, which I don't think anyone holds.
2: Oh, no, no. Well, coal in, in the United States has been, you know, it was it's used to produce steel, metallurgical coal, obviously, but, you know, it is one of the main... Uh, uses, of course, is electricity. And we talked about the benefits of electricity. And coal around the, the world has been the basis of electricity. I mean, coals range pretty much from 40% to 50% of the electricity worldwide. And in some places, it might be 65 to 70%, like China and India, 80%. In the United States, it's probably about 42 43%. So coal plays a crucial role in electricity. It also plays a crucial role, metallurgical coal, in, in, in building the, the fundamental uh, building blocks of, of of modern societies, such as steel. I mean, you can't produce steel at scale without coal. About 70, 70% of the electricity of coal, steel in the world, is produced using why,
1: coal. Why is that? Why do you need... Why do you and for the temperature
2: need. purposes, the... Uh, The 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 use of coke and so forth is uh, you know there's no other first of all there's no other fuel that can meet that that can meet that demand. I think that's one of the things you implied. How about some of these other sources? Well, you know, about 80 percent of the fossil fuels in the United States or the world, excuse me, are coal. It's it's coal. Why do we use coal? Because it's abundant. Because it's affordable. Because it's accessible, it's versatile, and it is there, and increasingly it's um, amenable to cleaner coal technologies. So you know, the coal is is going to be a fuel, the a fuel or the fuel of the future. It, it, people might say coal is antiquated. I mean, coal is. The first 10 years of this century, coal was the fastest growing fuel. The, ten, the current 10 years we're in right now, the current decade, it is the fastest fuel now, too. And it will be the fastest growing fuel in the next 10 years. So rather than being antiquated, coal is the cornerstone of electricity and energy, whether people like it or not. I mean, that's what it, it, people are going to use coal. I mean, China's, what, what are these nations going to use? What what would India use to bring its people to even a, me, a medium of, a level of, uh, uh, of of quality of life relative? To, just even to bring it to the level, say, of turkey or something, you know? It would take so much energy. It take going to take so much energy to do that. And then you have places like, you know, the Africa and so forth where people have... You know, you have hundreds of millions of people who have virtually no energy at all, no electricity. So, you know, coal, coal is going to be used in the future. It's, it's an overwhelming... It's, it's going to happen. Now, how about these other fuels? Well, you know, there's... Oil is getting increasingly expensive. I mean, you know, you've seen the oil prices and you've seen what the, the Department of Energy projects for, projects for oil prices. They're all going up in the future, too. So it's an insecure source, and it's, uh, you know, we're, we've been lucky enough to develop oil shale, or actually oil from tight uh, tight formations is a better way to say it, in the United States. We've You know, we've improved, improved our oil production. Uh, natural gas, we've had shale gas, which is a big a big deal, and it's certainly been a, a boon to the United States. And uh, so all these fuels, I think, fossil fuels are, are the, you know, the wave? there'd been the wave of the past. they're the wave now. There'll be the wave of the future, too. If you get into... Uh, I mean, I am just talking about Ontario not too long ago, just in, earlier in this conversation. Ontario has to put in... For every megawatt of coal they take out or have closed down in their foolishness, they have to put in seven megawatts of wind. I mean, it, 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 it's just... It's putting them in bankrupt. I mean, Ontario is one of the most... Uh, debt-ridden provinces or regions in the in North America, they have high, one of the highest deductive rates in North America. Their manufacturing employment has dropped by like twenty five to forty percent since they started instituting this policy of no coal. I mean, they're you know they're they're in an economic freefall of their own making. Uh, now, Germany, you may have followed them. Is you know waking up to the fact that wind, you know, wind and uh, some of these other uh, boutique uh, energy sources are not going to be able to replace fossil fuels. In fact, Germany's building like eight or ten coal-fired plants right this minute. So you know, they're, they're, after a while, you wake up to the fact that there's you know that, that, that there's uh, there's no free lunch in the energy business, and certainly wind is uh, a tremendous source for certain reasons, but you cannot run an industrial society on wind. And people say, well, Denmark does a lot of wind, and they've done really well. Yeah, but they when they have that power problem, they buy from Germany and other places. They always have to have a backup all the time.
1: Well, Denmark uses a lot of coal, right? I
2: don't know if Denmark uses any coal. I don't know that. I don't, I, I, actually, I don't know that. I don't know that. I don't that.
1: Bryson power. I don't I'm not a hundred percent sure if recollection serves it some some very large percentage of coal. As well as a lot of oil. But um I mean they gotta have to back up those wind turbines with something.
2: Oh yeah, well you, really the only fuel you can really back it up with efficiently is natural gas. Because you know, you natural gas you can go up right now with the technologies we have now. you know, uh I mean technologies change and maybe you know, coal would be, in the future, a backup to natural for wind. But natural gas is the, is the one you can start up at a moment's notice because, you know, wind is, you know, on, it, it, people say it's, it, it's not predictable no matter what, and it's intermittent. Regardless of what anybody says, it's intermittent. And, you know, sometimes you have, one day you have a lot of wind, next day, or not wind. If you have too much wind, you can't run your turbines anyway, so you have to hit that sweet spot. And if you, you know, other days you might have no wind. And the least likely day for the wind to blow is the hottest day of the year. So you've got, you got wind that you know, we can use, but as I said, you can't run an industrial society on intermittent energy. Um, and then we have oil, which is, has a whole list of its own problems, including security. And you've got coal, which is distributed across 70 countries. And there's significant deposits in many of those countries that they can get access to. That's why they're going to use coal. I
1: mean, well, right now, I mean, we still have a, a fairly hard distinction with coal, um, you know, with oil as transportation fuels, and coal as electricity. What do you see as the future of that, both with uh, more electrified vehicles, but also uh, coal to liquids?
2: Well, I think the. Uh, I, the electric vehicles. I don't know a lot about electric vehicles. I know that the uh, uh, electric vehicles in, would be easily manageable in, you know, a develop if you had a rational development of electric power generation capacity, because uh, you could then you could level out the demand by having people charge their electric vehicles when you know there was a. The window to do it, and so you wouldn't have to build a lot more electric power plants, but uh, you need to have reliable electric power plants. And uh, what was the second part of that? You asked me about uh, uh, something else that I I wanted to ask. I I thought I was the first one first, and the second one was, I can't remember, was electric vehicles and
1: um, coal to liquids.
2: Oh, yeah, coal to liquids. Well, you know, the. There's two ways that I think coal can contribute to our liquid fuel. The first one, and I think the most likely one down the road, is going to be uh, using the carbon dioxide captured from coal power plants, in other words, carbon capture, and and using that CO2 in the process known as enhanced oil recovery. Now, I don't know if you follow the enhanced oil recovery, but down in Texas, they uh, have a, uh, a situ- they, they have uh, a number of uh, facilities that take the CO2, essentially pumping into the ground into oil reservoirs, and that pushes the res- the oil out of the reservoir, and they produce uh, something like three hundred thousand barrels of oil a day doing that. Now we have plenty of CO2 that comes from burning fossil fuels. And it, what's, you know, the technologies exist to capture that CO two at the power plant, and then transport it to areas where there's oil and enhanced oil recovery through, you know, in these reservoirs that exist in all through the United States, but a large number of them are in Texas and Oklahoma and so forth. So you, you that's where I think the, the United States will get a lot of oil in the future, and that is the. Uh, and that's, I think, what President Obama and the Department of Energy really started to, you know, provide some research and so forth on that issue last year. And I think that's where they see that the United States can. Because it's killing two birds with one stone. First of all, you're storing the CO2 underground. And second of all, you're producing electricity. I mean, oil. And even, you know, the, you know environmentalists like the National uh, NRDC uh, have supported enhanced oil recovery, saying that's you know sort of a win-win game. So that's one way I think we're going to get electricity, oil. The second way I think is through cold liquids, which you know, as I understand, it, is probably going to be economical of sixty dollars uh, an oil sixty dollars a barrel, or no more than eighty. And then you know we're going to have oil at eighty dollars a barrel. I mean that's what the Department of Energy tells us anyway. So. Uh, coal to liquids is also an established process I mean that's the Germans did that way back in world war in the twenties and through the war uh, South South Africa's doing it right now. China has definitely moved in that direction. They're building uh coal to liquid power the uh, coal to liquid plants right this minute. I was in China in October and we were they were showing us a coal to liquids power plant that they're that they're not power plant, coal to liquids facility that they're building, and uh, they're also building coal to gas facilities. So you know, coal. As I said before, coal is a versatile fuel. One of the strengths of coal is versatility. You can do so much with it. You can make chemicals. You can make uh, oil. You can produce oil. You can produce um, natural gas. You can it, it serves as the basis of producing steel, and you can produce electricity from it. I mean, coal is a valuable resource. Uh, probably the most important, it is the most important energy resource in the world. I mean, it built how many societies already? It's building China right now. I don't know if you've been to China lately, but that's a coal-fired country, and they're you know, growing and improving the lives of their people. Now you see pictures of Beijing with, you know, the the, um, um, the the clouds and so forth. But if you remember, that, that's the same thing. You know, if you look at some of the old pictures of Los Angeles in in 1950, you know, you see similar kinds of signs of pictures. Now, one of the things that is happening with um, China is they're building efficient power plants. They're taking 100,000... Uh, megawatts, uh, which is basically 100, say 100 nuclear plant equivalent, offline, and they're building 125,000 megawatts of clean, coal, highly efficient power plants that re- significantly reduce emissions. So the some the, the most efficient power plants being built in the world right now are in China. I mean, China is always being attacked by the New York Times and so forth, but they're building the most efficient power plants in the world. The coal plants that they're building are the best power plants in the world. The most efficient power plant in the world is in Shanghai. What do you you take as efficient? Um... Well, they they produce more fuel per unit uh, of fuel. They produce more energy per unit of fuel. And that's where efficiency goes. When once you get to the, the, probably the best you're going to get is in the fifty percent, and the, these plants are in, in the forty percent, and then the United States the average is thirty two percent, I think. Mm-hmm. So we haven't built the, the we haven't upgraded our power plants uh, for lots of reasons. Some of them are illegal, that you know environmental law. Uh, legislation for, sort of prohibits you from improving your coal plant. It's kind of crazy, but it's true. It's called new source review. You have to have a... Uh, if, if you're going to improve your power plant and make it more efficient, burn less fuel, and produce more energy, and re, and, and uh, have lower emissions, you got to get a, a whole new permit like it's a brand new source. So it costs a fortune to do all those environmental impact statements, And so people, you know, it's not cost effective to improve the power plant in that sense. So this whole source, this new source review, you could have a whole, you should get a couple lawyers in and then you could talk for a week on that, how that's held the United States back.
1: Yeah, and one of the threads I, I see emerging that I've seen emerging in my own research is that coal, I mean, coal has this advantage of being... So plentiful and so relatively easy and predictable to access compared to, say, you know, oil or, or natural gas, which is harder to get. Um, and in a sense, has this disadvantage of it's it's not as purified by natural processes, and thus you can. But with enough technology, you can make it into. I mean, you can synthesize it into the equivalent of oil. You can synthesize it into the equivalent of gas, and it's this this area that's ripe for technological innovation, and yet. Most of our public policy is to discourage any innovation, to discourage the use of the material as such.
2: Absolutely. That's, that's a, that's a perfect, the perfect summary of where we stand. We have probably the most important energy resource in the world sitting on our lap right here. It's called the Powder River Basin. The Powder River Basin has more coal by far than Saudi Arabia has oil. And in the Illinois Basin also. I mean, people say, you know, the United States is the Saudi Arabia coal. Illinois is the Saudi Arabia coal. We we have all, we have this huge coal resource, and we have this tremendous technology and technological ability. It's 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 getting the uh, the act together to utilize the coal. I mean, because if, if, in, in, clean coal technology works. I mean, if you look at the um, amount of emissions of, say, sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxides, and so forth, since 1970, and that tremendous drop-off it, I mean, in terms of emissions from coal plants of sulfur dioxide, for example, and yet the amount of coal electric power has increased 170% while the amount of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere has been reduced by 80% or 90%, clinical technology works. I mean, it, it works. You have to implement it, though, and it has to take some time. So, you, you know, and then eventually we're going to have to do it because what, what else would we do? I mean, people say, well, build nuclear plants. Now, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm all for nuclear plants. I'd go out and build them all tonight if I'd spend as shoveled as tonight if I could. But, you know, nuclear plants are so expensive. Where are you going to get the welders? Where are you going to get all the pieces of equipment associated with building a nuclear plant? You can't buy them in Kmart. And sometimes the projections of nuclear are just, what might happen to nuclear, are incredibly off the mark. I mean, I was looking at the International Energy Agency's prediction for uh, 2035 in terms of nuclear power. And they said, well... We're going to build—I uh, don't know—it's like 400 gigawatt of, of, coal, of uh, nuclear power in the next uh, next 15 or 30, 25 years. Well, I calculated you'd have to build a nuclear power plant every 19 days to meet that to meet that requirement, beat that projection. And so we're not going to build nuclear power plants less in, in, in you know in the average of three one every, every three weeks for the next 35 years. Uh, I mean, you well, can say I don't, anything. I, don't, you can...
1: I wouldn't say that category. I mean, I think the issue is that, for me, is that with with certain of the technologies, there's a, just a, a huge bias against, which I think has certain philosophical causes. Even if you look at nuclear, you look at coal, there's just this incredible antipathy toward them, and thus, in terms of, um, there's, there's just this bias that makes it much, much harder to do. I mean, there's nothing to say that if you had better policies that you couldn't... Uh, build them a lot more quickly but I guess what's what's standing out to me especially just talking about all the coal technologies is that we're taught to view energy in terms of these these moral narratives that certain raw materials are good and certain are bad so the sun is good the wind is good coal is bad oil is bad
2: and yet really what it yeah, is, I, mean, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is because I'm muddled over all the time my my daughter lives up in wilkes Pennsylvania. Now I go up there and I ride up there and I see all these wind turbines on the mountains. And then you see the, you know, and you say, you tell me this doesn't have an environmental impact? And you put the wind turbines in and that big line and all of a sudden you, you interfere with the migration of the uh, 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 the animals. And then all of a sudden, how many birds you wind up killing anyway? And you, you're out there in California there, on gold needles right and left. I mean, so I think you're right. Coal and, and some of these, I think they're associated with big business or whatever, and people just, you know, in this problem, it seems to me, after I've worked more in the coal industry, uh, with the coal industry, and even in the federal government, you know, there's this huge number of people that are doing really good work on trying to improve coal, make coal cleaner, and it, it, it's been a success.
0: It really has.
2: I mean, there's no one can deny that coal was not cleaner now, way, way, way cleaner than it was when we were kids. When I was a kid or 25 or 30 years ago, you know, so you have all these people working, all these engineers, all these companies are providing electric power every single day for people like me and you, you and me to talk and do the things we do. And then somebody comes out and writes an article in some, you know, from an environmental group, and said, starts with the their a statement: "There's no such cl- thing as clean coal." So you have this, you know, this cavalier approach to science, so to speak. You know, you're denying all the progress that's been made, so by this headline: "There's no such thing as clean coal." Well, in fact, clean, there is clean coal right now being used. Coal is far cleaner than it was. Emissions have been reduced. We're in the verge of being able to use carbon capture. Now, when you can use, when you can capture the carbon in the, from the coal plants, well, all of a sudden, now you have access to, you know, the world. the the United States is 27% of the coal. I think basically people some people just hate coal another thing though it seems to me is that this whole concept of uh you know the uh, of closing down coal plants uh, in, in the impact associated with that and uh, in, in entering into uh, I think people want some of the anti uh, coal people wanted everybody to use less electricity uh, and use less and use less of of everything. Okay, when in fact it's you know there's people that are in poverty. There's people that don't have any electricity. I don't think that those people are being taken into consideration. The people that you know that want to live a, a better life. I mean, it's easy to be writing down in Washington D.C. and sort of like, well, you know, We, I, I, when I saw one woman the other day in a show, she, they said, well, these new regulations will only cost the average family like, you know, $7 a week or something. She said, well, that's not too bad. I can pay that. Well, yeah, she can pay it. She's on the, in the news show. How about the mother that wants to decide whether to buy tennis shoes for her kids, a single mother in Detroit? What's she going to do? So, I mean, you know, I, I think there's, a, there's this gap between the people that have less in this world and the people who have more. And the people who have more have trouble understanding the people that have less because we don't know them. You know, when I was uh, a kid, uh, when I sat in, a, in, in my seventh grade seat, uh, the, the doctor's daughters of our, of our town sat right next to me on one side and the garbage man's son sat on the other side. Well, you don't see that anymore. You don't see that kind of inter you know uh, that heterogeneity in the schools. You know, my daughter, my granddaughters go to a private school where everybody some of the people in her school have for private airplanes. So, you know, I think there's a there's an increasing this whole business is creation stratification. I do believe that is an issue. Yeah. People at the top don't understand and nobody understands what it's like to have not have electricity there's nobody from the Sierra club that ever dealt with it having no electricity. I can tell you that.
0: It yeah, is
1: as, as a additional thought to that. So, I mean, you know, with any energy process, there's the production side and the consumption side. So there's definitely a lack of study of an empathy for uh, the people, the victims of, of lack of energy or, or people who can't afford energy. There's also zero interest in what it actually takes to produce energy, and how much uh, evolution there had to be in the different fossil fuel industries to achieve cheap, plentiful, reliable energy for the masses, and, and to keep growing it, and, and I think both of these uh, tend to be more present on the left, and, and historically, certainly. I mean, the socialists were not the people who were, you know, starving in the streets. They were the people who talked about people starving in the streets and pretended that you know, that a dictatorship would be some solution or that government control would be the solution. But there's remarkably little interest in the people not getting energy and, then act, and how the energy is, is produced. It just To them, it's sufficient to say, oh, well, we, we shouldn't use coal, we should just use the sun, as if it's not really, really difficult to produce energy and as if we've, you know we've only been able to do it well for about 200 years.
2: Well, you know, this kind of stuff, it really is true. And at a university, of course, I see it all the time. We uh, Last year, we had some guy from the physics department saying that the nuclear reactor in the sky, the sun, could provide all of our electricity. I mean, you know, that kind of bullshit, you know, shows up in, even at university.
1: But, I mean, how would he propose... I mean, if, if this guy came along... I mean, essentially, that's... That's a highly experimental and, and you know, substantially failed technology for the past 75 years in terms of, you know, mass electricity production through photovoltaic conversion. I mean, that would be as if he said, well, you know, I've invented, um, you know, a personal space shuttle that costs $80. Like, you just, you would never believe it. You just say, well, okay, that sounds very implausible. But we'll go prove it. But in the realm of energy, someone comes up with um, just a completely arbitrary technological claim. Which is that we can somehow convert uh, you know, the sun's photons into energy for everyone that they can afford. And he just makes it up, but it's it's considered legitimate because he can do an equation where he can show that the amount of raw energy emanating from the sun is greater than the amount of raw energy that we use, as if that has any relevance whatsoever.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the case. I you know, I've been around academic life all my adult life since I was eighteen years old, obviously. And Uh, You know, I think part of it comes from the erosion of our understanding of science and the requirements to take science in schools. I mean, I I believe that. I've seen it happen here, uh, and I've seen it happen at other universities. You know, the watering down of the scientific curriculum, of the basic curriculum. Um, I've been on, I was on many, many curriculum uh, committees in in my time at uh, this university and others. And I, uh, uh, I've seen you know the uh, sort of the uh, let's say in the old days you could take physics, chemistry, and you know so forth, biology. Well, now we have all kind of alternative courses that you could take: and environmental science, and sometimes when I talk to one kid, that's a, a group of my students, their, their environmental science course, part of their, they ex- part of their assignment was to go. I'll uh, clean up the park. You know, I mean, so I don't think people under, Have this. I don't think they have the same respect for science that they did. You know, I don't know how old you are, but I was, you know, I was a, a child when Sputnik went up. I was about, I was twelve years old, and you know the the interest in science at that time was was huge, and now you just don't see it. I mean, you know, the, one of those you know, presidential candidates, I don't know if it was, uh, I forget who it was, said, well, you know, we ought to re, uh, re-expand our space program and was, like, ridiculed for it. You know, there, there's there's this uh, tendency now, I think, to demean certain aspects of science and not have that same curiosity. I mean, we have the technology to provide electricity to the world with nuclear power and coal and I don't think natural gas is a tremendous source of electricity in the sense I think it should it's too important it should be used for other things um, and uh, you know manufacturing and so forth we have those resources we just in it we just don't bring them to bear and I, and I think that's you know combination of lack of respect for science and technology and also sort of a a, a real amount of indifference that that exists among um, the haves against the haves-nots. I mean, it's, you know, it's like the, I was reading something the other day about, how do you can you know the, how people now just shift over in channels of, of all these, I say, you know, advertisements relating to starving children and so forth. Missionaries do on trying asking for money. and how people just doesn't affect people at all. It's sort of like when you know you're in a big city, you step over something laying on the sidewalk. You know, it's just like a the uh, the scar tissue that's been built up in our society in terms of humanity is pretty significant, I believe, and I think it's. I think it's, 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 it's continuing and maybe expanding of uh, certain parts of the world. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, people are dying every, as we talk. There's 25,000 children died today of various aspects of poverty. I mean, we become inured to that. Uh, and India, which is one of the greatest impoverished nations, is basically saying, you know, we're going to try to slow this down or stop it. We're going to use coal, and China already did. China already decided that they were going to change things. But even China, people don't use use a lot of electricity. You know, they're not out there using more electricity than Burbank, uh, California. Well, yeah, that's for sure. So I mean, it's a. There's a lot of issues associated with it. And I think, uh, you know, it's a, and there's also sometimes a, I don't know, the holier-than-thou approach, and I mean, California is my my, my my pet peeve on that. You know, the California politicians go around and we use less electricity than everybody else we use electricity. But, but they, you know, California has some of the lowest cooling day degrees uh, in in the United States, I mean, California has less cooling day degrees where they have to use air conditioners than West Virginia does. You know, so I mean, it's it, it, it's a uh, there's a certain amount of uh, the psychology thing. I think that's what you hit on. It's, just, it's there's some aspect of psychology to it, not practicality.
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely true, and it's something we talk about on the show. Uh, Well, we need to wrap up. So I just want to remind people uh, where they can learn more about you. Energy-facts.org. I subscribe to it and it's been forwarded to me by many other people. So it's it's definitely got really interesting data. And for those of you who follow Center for Industrial Progress and our views about how energy improves life across the board, including our environment, I think you'll find a lot of really good data here. Uh, Any other resources our listeners should know about before we sign off?
2: Um, well, there's a number of reports in the National Coal Council that they might want to take a look at, you know, if they're interested in pursuing it a little more. Uh, that's a pretty good... Uh, uh, and uh, Peabody Energy, uh, which is largely a coal company, has a, uh, uh, has a website called Coal Can Do That. So uh, they, they, have, they have some pretty good stuff, and I put some stuff on there occasionally myself. I think it's just basically pointed out the better, you know, the the in all these groups, including my own research. Is it, it, first of all, I mean, I would close with saying it's the I consider it that that coal is the fuel of the future. So people who see coal as the fuel of the past, I don't, I think, I, don't, I think they don't think about the future because the only way you're going to be. I started just by saying there's going to be nine point four billion people. That's billion in this world in nineteen in two thousand fifty. Now you tell me where they're going to get electricity, steel, to build these big cities that they're being that are being built right now. And it's going to be coal. And are going to people will use people will use coal. China will continue to use coal. India will use coal. Southeast Asia will use coal. Europe is now starting to think again about coal. And the United States will turn back to coal
1: too. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. It is exciting. It, is, it will be interesting, and hopefully, you know, we can do as much as possible to uh, to stop the attacks on coal technology. So, Frank, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners did too. And yeah, thank you very much.
2: I appreciate it, and uh, uh, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again to Frank Clemente for coming on the show. The point that came up at the end is what I what I want to focus on as we wrap up. And it really occurred to me with, with a new degree of, of clarity as I was saying it. So I just want to elaborate on it a bit. And this is the idea that there, modern technology gives us the potential to turn an energy source that has quite a few inherent hazards such as coal, and it does have a few, quite a few inherent hazards in the sense of, by default, if you just do something like burn it, you know, when people used to burn coal, it created a lot of smoke and was, was uh, you know, less healthy to be around than wood, so only poor people burned coal. Uh, but over time, you had innovations, things like the Franklin stove that allowed people to more healthily have coal in their house. Um, and then, of course, you had the whole steam engine uh, revolution, and you had decentralized power, which took coal away from places, and then you have forms of, of filtering it, and you have forms of uh, dealing with the byproducts. And one of the things Dr. Clemente points out in his work is that this is getting better and better and better, and no one is noticing it, because they have this narrative of, well, coal is dirty. Well, first of all, that that essentially is... a is a sort of useless type of statement because it, it amounts to, well, coal involves waste. Well, everything involves waste. But if, if we look at coal technology, which is really the issue, not the raw material but the technology, that is a healthy technology that's becoming healthier and healthier and healthier. And imagine if the really smart people who have been you know, financially incentivized and morally incentivized in terms of, of uh, pressure – to go into fields like solar and wind, which are, are very unpromising, and deal with uh, technologies that seem to be forever fundamentally flawed, and, you know, trying to eke out another, uh, you know, another uh, unreliable kilowatt hour out of a windmill. But what if they were really focused on making valuable use of every piece of a lump of coal? Then we can take advantage of the fact that there's an astonishing amount of this raw material, and we could get progressively more value from it, including, uh, as Pierre Derrochet, who's been on the show several times, likes to say, including turning the waste into wealth or getting wealth out of waste. So I, even more after this show, I see learning how to better utilize the best sources of energy as a noble goal. And it's not that it's not that they're bad or unacceptable the way that they are. They're enormously beneficial and positive. But they can become that much more uh, positive. And that's, that should be a big focus of technology, not moving toward a source of energy that is pursued simply because it's considered uh, politically correct uh, to do so. So that's, that's the final thought. What if, how great would it be if our you know if all the top minds had the moral license were were given the moral encouragement to truly work on the best most promising sources of energy uh instead of as as a friend of CIP once called it uh solving worthless problems which is almost the entire solar and wind industry these days so that's i think uh an inspiring possibility to think about and those of you who listen to this show, keep spreading the word about the morality of the best sources of energy, like fossil fuels and nuclear, and, and we'll get there. All right, so that's, that's the show for today. Thank you for listening. As always, if you want to contact me, uh, my email address is alex@industrialprogress.net You can send hate mail, love mail, questions, comments. Uh, the website is industrialprogress.com. Make sure to check out facebook.com slash fuels. We have a lot of really interesting stuff going there, Going on there. Please like it and get your friends to like it. We're at, uh, we just got over 1,500 likes. It's been growing really quickly lately. We've been putting more content up in the last week or two. We really want to get that up to 10,000 and beyond because imagine if we can get 100,000, that'll really show something about there's a real movement for fossil fuels. And I know there's a lot of passionate people out there who are familiar with us through this show or through other means. And there are a lot of potentially passionate people out there who can hear about us through you. So get on that page, get your friends to like it, and you know we're, we'll zoom toward the 10,000 mark, and then from there we'll get a strategy to go to the 100,000 mark and who knows where we can go from there. So with that uh, it's been fun. We'll be back next week with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.